Okay, well, before we get into the message, I just wanted to give a brief announcement on Malawi missions. Uh, we're about to go, so two weeks left, and our team is going to be leaving, and you've heard a few different things already on the trip. Uh, we had Brother Chris come up here and give the initial announcement. He showed a video, and then we also had, um, I think, Brother Luke uh, gave an announcement regarding the fundraiser, explain more about the trip. Well, if you weren't here during those weeks, or if you just kind of missed or forgot everything that was said, we have this pamphlet. So please uh, hold on to this, read through it. And this is basically a simple way for you to know exactly what the team is going to be doing and for you to partner with us. That's why it says here, partner with us. Uh, but the main way would be through prayer, to just know what we're doing, where we're at, on what day, what we're doing on what day, and to just be praying. And so um, on in this pamphlet, you'll see what the mission team will be doing. You'll see who the mission team members are. Uh, next Sunday, you're going to actually meet them. Uh, we're going to have them up here the last Sunday before we leave and pray for everybody. So uh, please uh, join us for that. Uh, and then how to support the team. We also have here on the back flap the schedule. So this is just straight from our manual of what we're going to be doing on what day. So you could be kind of following and tracking where the team is and what we're doing and just praying for us. So please hold on to this. Uh, I just want you to, yeah, be a part of the missions, and you don't have to go to Malawi to be a part. You could just join us, partner with us through prayer, and also financial giving as well. Uh, we've already had a wonderful uh, fundraiser back-to-back. -back. Uh, the last one we had, we raised over $500, the Lunchbox fundraiser, so praise God for that. Um, but if you want to give more or you haven't had a chance yet, then you can give directly to the team by just going to our website. You could go through PayPal or just send a check to the office, write Malawi missions. The whole thing will go to the team. Okay? All right. Praise God. We'll open up your Bibles to Revelation 2, 12 through 17. And while you do that, I'm going to just say a few words regarding Father's Day and then say a prayer for the fathers. But Father's Day always reminds me, of course, of our Heavenly Father. He is the prime example. He is the best father. And so for even those who don't have a father on Father's Day, we all celebrate this day, amen, because we have a heavenly father. Uh, but for those of us who do have heavenly, or I'm sorry, earthly fathers, who are fathers here on earth, um, this is just my quick word of encouragement, but you are so needed. You are so needed, amen. I remember this one uh, talk I heard. It was a non-Christian, secular person. She was giving a TED talk, but she was a self-professed feminist. But she just kind of came up on stage and she said, I'm a feminist and I've been doing this for many, many years. And we had a good run, ladies, and she was kind of talking to the crowd. But then she said, but I've had a change of mission or change of calling in the recent years. And she basically said, now I'm an advocate for men. And the reason why is because she said, I've realized how desperately children and families need fathers. And so she's, I think, a psychologist. She did a lot of studies on this and she's like, Fathers are beaten up in our culture. They are pushed down. They are ridiculed. I mean, you watch any commercial, who's the butt of the joke? It's the dad, right? Ho, 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 the stupid dad. And she said, this has to stop. And she just straight says, stop it. We need to stop beating up on the guys. Because children and wives and society needs strong dads. Amen? And so that's coming from the mouth of a feminist. And so I don't usually quote uh, people like that up, up here, but I just needed to say that. And so the Bible itself says, fathers give life. It says that in Proverbs 23, 22. Listen to your father, children, who give you life. Amen? So God sees them as important. He says they actually give you life. And I think that's more than just biological life. Fathers are so needed. And so just join me as I pray for the dads on this Father's Day. And then we're going to go into a very different message on the end times. <laughs> Father God, we thank you so much. Uh, we love you, and we thank you, and we give you all the glory for being our true heavenly father. And so for those of us who may not have a father on Father's Day, Lord, help us to know that we actually do, and you are him. And so we worship and we celebrate you more than anything else. We celebrate you on this day. But for those who are fathers here on earth, Lord, I, I want to pray for them. We all have fathers, Lord, here on earth. And I pray and ask that you will build them up, Lord Jesus, that you will encourage them. That truly, Father, you have said it in your own word. Fathers 
are a necessary part of bringing life, life to their families, life to their communities, life to the church. And I pray and ask, oh God, that the men, the fathers will step up, that they will be courageous, that they will, Father, not be passive, that they will not be self-centered, they will not be tyrants wanting to just do what they want. But Lord God, I pray that they will be humble, servant, sacrificial leaders. And when they step into that role, then everything works. Everyone is happy. Happy wives, happy children, happy communities. And so, Lord, fathers are so vital. So, Lord God, please encourage the fathers in this church. Bless them. Let them know that, Lord, that they have a father of their own, you in heaven, and you give them everything they need. Father God, let their eyes turn to you even on this Father's Day. Let them look to you, their fathers. So, Lord God, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, praise God. Open up your Bibles to Revelation 2, 12 through 17. So Revelation 2, 12 through 17. All right, if you're joining us here in person, you'll see it up on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, you'll see it on your screen at home. But Revelation 2, 12 through 17. This is God's word. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, uh, we need you at this time. We need you to open up this word uh, before us, to open up our hearts, to speak it so that we may receive. For truly, Lord God, everything that we read, everything we see in the word right now, Lord God, we desperately need in this day and age, in this church, in the churches of our time, Lord, we need to hear this. And so, Lord God, I pray that you would open up our hearts. We thank you again, Father, on this Father's Day for being such a loving Father to us. Father, speak through me and be with everyone here. Open their hearts. Fill us with faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, today we're going to be continuing our study in the seven letters in the book of Revelation. And I've said this every week, but the book of Revelation is usually known for what? Strange teachings on the end times. Usually it's kind of radioactive. Pastors stay away from this book. And yet, they shouldn't, because it's really about what? It's really about a revelation of Jesus Christ. It says that right at the beginning of the entire book. And what does revelation reveal about Jesus Christ? Well, it reveals what he will do before, during, and immediately after he returns, after his second coming. But in the first three chapters of Revelation, because this series is focused on the first three chapters, the focus of these chapters is on what Jesus is doing before his second coming. I'm talking about right now. It's focused on what he is doing right now. And what is he doing? It's very clear. Jesus is standing in the midst of his church, and he is continuously ministering to his church. And so in the first three chapters of Revelation, you see different descriptions of Jesus. We already covered it. But you see these weird kind of descriptions of him having eyes of fire, a sword coming out of his mouth, feet of bronze, all these different descriptions. And every single one points to a ministry he is doing for the church. They're pointing to a ministry. And so Jesus is in the midst. So even in our church, Jesus is right here. I know he is because the word says it. And he is ministering. Even right now, he is reaching out and ministering to the church. And so here's a quick little side point. But if this is true, if Jesus is always right here, and he is continuously ministering to the church, how do you think he'll respond to your prayers for the church? 
the moment you get on your knees or you're, you're driving in your car and you start praying for the church, how do you think he'll respond? I think he's going to respond very quickly. And even if he doesn't respond quickly, you can have absolute confidence that he hears your prayers and he will answer them. See, when we pray for a lot of other things, we don't know for sure, right? I mean, he always hears them, but we don't know if he's going to answer. Because it could be a self-centered prayer, a carnal prayer. Carnal meaning like it's just purely of the flesh, what we want, not what the spirit wants. But when you pray for the church, you can be confident he hears it, he will answer it. And some of you guys have testimonies of that. I've heard them. But you've shared how you've prayed for something very specific. I don't know what happened. Okay, there we are. We came back. <laughs> but that exact thing happened. And you've shared that. And so Jesus is in the midst, brothers and sisters. And he hears your prayers. He will answer them. And so if you know that, then you should wonder, why don't we pray more for the church? Amen? Why don't we pray more? knowing that Jesus is right here and he will hear these prayers. But this is what we see clearly in the opening chapters of Revelation. So the book of Revelation tells us Jesus is ministering to the church, and that's what these seven letters are all about. Okay, each one of these letters is Jesus in the midst of his church ministering to the church. That's why he sent these letters. And these letters were sent to the seven churches in Asia Minor, and that number seven, I think, is very significant. But that number, I think, represents something bigger than just these historic churches in Asia Minor okay, at that time in the first century. But the number seven represents completion. So I think it's significant. But I believe when John said there are seven churches, there really were seven, but I also think it points to a complete representation of all the churches through all time. So what I'm saying is these seven churches, these historic churches, represent all churches through all time. So when Jesus begins to address all these different issues in these letters, I believe he's talking about issues you're going to see in all the churches through all time, even in our church. So when you read these letters, you can read them as very personal letters to us. Each and every one of these letters, they're written to us. And at different seasons, at different times, we may be going through these different issues as well. Okay, they, they represent all churches of all time. So with that, let's look at the next letter Jesus sent to the church. So two weeks ago, we looked at the first letter, which was to his loveless church at Ephesus. Then we looked at, last week, his second letter to his suffering church at Smyrna. And today, we're going to look at Jesus' third letter to his compromised church at Pergamum. His compromised church. And out of the seven churches, I think the church at Pergamum represents evangelical churches in America the most. When I look at what Jesus had to say about the church at Pergamum, I could almost hear Jesus saying those exact words to evangelical churches today. I really believe that. And that's because we are living in a day when large numbers of evangelical churches are compromised. Okay, churches today are compromised. There's even a website with the address, thecompromisechurch.com. <laughs> I was surprised when I found it. But it's telling. When somebody decided to go and register this web address and pay money for it and then start an entire website just to talk about how compromised the church in America is. Okay, I think that's very telling. And their focus on this website is mainly evangelical churches. But listen to what they have to say on their homepage, right up on their homepage. Add some progressive Christianity, a sprinkle of new age, a pinch of some of the remnants of the seeker movement, a dash of the emergent church, and a healthy dose of the prosperity gospel. Put it in a blender and add a healthy dose of whatever else the world is teaching and pour it out and voila. I added that voila. <laughs> you have a compromised church. You have a compromised church. Truth compromised for numbers. Sub substance compromised for money. Foundations compromised for legacy. Righteousness compromised for conformity. In many churches across America, the foundation is compromised. We now have houses of cars standing across America. So there's a whole website dedicated to this. Now, whether you agree with this person or not, I think most Christians would agree the evangelical church today looks nothing like the church in the past. But what has changed? Why do churches not look like the churches before? 
I'm talking about 30 years ago, 50 years ago. We all kind of know that. We feel it. We sense it. So what has changed? Well, could it be compromise? That the church today, and I'm talking about evangelical churches, churches that believe in Jesus, the true Jesus and the true Bible, but could it be that they have become compromised with the culture? Well, I think so. And if this is true, then what Jesus has to say to Pergamum, I think, are the same words that he's saying to the church today. So I want to look at what Jesus has to say to the church at Pergamum. But he looked at, or he talked about, I should say, the place of compromise, the people of compromise, the peril of compromise, and then finally a promise to those who conquer. So this is what Jesus had to say. So first, the place of compromise. Okay, this is where Jesus starts. Look at Revelation 2.13. Jesus said, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So right there, Jesus mentions the word dwell two times. Jesus said to his followers, I know where you dwell, and later he said, this is where Satan also dwells. This is where Satan dwells. And that word dwell has permanence to it. It just simply means where you live. And so this is where the Pergamon Christians lived. This is where they were from. This is where they had grown roots. This is likely where they're going to die. They're going to live here for the rest of their lives. This is where they dwell. And this place where they dwell is also the place where Satan dwells. So Satan also dwells in this city. Now, a lot of Christians, we don't think about this or even know this, but unlike God, Satan is not omnipresent. Okay, we need to understand that. Satan cannot be at all places at all times. God can. Satan cannot. But he's like us, where he can only be at one place at one time. So what that means is Satan has certain places at certain times where he is staying there. He is dwelling in these places. Places where you can say he sets up shop for a while to do his work. And so Jesus, knowing all things, he said, in the first century, Satan was dwelling in Pergamum. He has set up shop in Pergamum to do his work. And this is why Jesus said in verse 13, this is where Satan's throne is. The throne could be kind of an image of his command center, his headquarters, where he's directing traffic. And this is where he's doing his works. So then what kind of a place was this where Satan dwelt? along with the other Christians there. What kind of a place? Well, Pergamum was a large Greek city. It was about 15 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. So all these seven cities, they, they're near the Aegean Sea in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Well, this city was 15 miles inland. So we're in the inland right now. So this city was inland. And it was about 100 miles north of Ephesus. And by the way, Smyrna was right in between Ephesus and Pergamum. So Pergamum, Ephesus way up here, and Smyrna is kind of in the middle. And so this is Pergamum. It was an inland city, very large, but it was not only large, it was the capital city of Asia Minor. Okay, this is the capital city. Okay, my, my son, he memorized all the capitals of every city or every, I think, state in the United States. Well, here's one more to memorize, Joshua. <laughs> but what was the capital city of Asia Minor in the first century? It was Pergamum. Okay, it was Pergamum. And as the capital city, it was very impressive. But historians know that it sat on top of a large rocky hill, a 1,000 feet above sea level. And so if you were up here on that city, you, you, you would have incredible views of the valley below, incredible views. And by the way, there is a city still on that hill today. And so this city endured, but it's no longer called Pergamum, but now it's called Bergama. Very similar. Pergamum became Bergama in modern-day Turkey. But there's still a city on that hill today. So Pergamum was an impressive city built to last, and it had the second largest library in the ancient world. Okay, all this information is important to understand what's happening here. But this library was the second largest in the ancient world. The largest one was Alexandria. The second largest was in Pergamum. They had, get this, 200,000 handwritten books. Amazing. Okay, this is before the printing press. 200,000 handwritten books. Scholars believe the word parchment actually came from Pergamum. It's similar sounding, but that's where the word parchment came from, some scholars believe. And this famous library turned Pergamum into a center for culture and learning. It's kind of like when a large university gets built in a city, what happens? All these students move in, professors move in, businesses pop up. It becomes kind of a center of learning, right, and culture. That happened to Pergamum when this library was built. 
One of the most famous physicians in the ancient world, Galen, also was born there and studied there. Galen was almost right up there with Hippocrates. Many of you guys in the medical field, you know Hippocrates. Well, Galen was almost right up there as the second most famous physician. Well, he was from Pergamum. In addition to that, Pergamum was also a center for all kinds of religious activity. And this is where it's very important, what was happening to the Christians. But it was a major center for the worship of four important Greek gods. Remember, this was a Greek city. So they had massive temples to Zeus, Athena, Asclepios, and Dionysos. So these are Greek gods, and they had huge temples. It was a major center for the worship of these false gods. And of course, Pergamum was also a major center for the worship of the Roman emperor, a mere man. Because by this point in the first century, the end of the first century, Rome was in control of the city. And so this had become a major center of the worship of the Roman emperor, just a mere man. And the citizens of Pergamum made sacrifices to the emperor, you get this, daily, daily. This is far more than other cities that offer sacrifices just once a year. So that was a requirement, usually, just once a year, go to the temple and worship the emperor. But Pergamon, no, that wasn't enough. They worshipped every single day. They offered sacrifices daily to this mortal, this man, the emperor. And so get this, please hear this. But Bible scholars say this is why Christians were in danger in Pergamum more than any other city. And here's the reason why. It's because every single day Christians would have been pressured or persecuted. Why aren't you offering sacrifices to the Roman emperor? We're all going every single day this is happening. Why aren't you going? How come you're not worshiping the emperor? And so they, they would have faced this pressure daily and persecution daily. And this is probably the reason why the pastor, I believe he was the pastor or at least an elder of this church, this is why he was put to death. Jesus mentioned it in verse 13. You did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. This is probably why Antipas died. Because every single day the Christians were being pressured, why aren't you worshiping the emperor and going and offering sacrifices? And so this church was facing some huge, huge persecution. But this was Pergamum. Pergamum was a very large, impressive capital city. It was a major center for culture, learning, business, politics, and false religion. It was the center for emperor worship. Do you guys get a picture? So last week I talked about Smyrna being a very beautiful city by the coast, kind of like San Francisco. Well, the picture I get of Pergamum is kind of like New York City. It's a very different kind of city, right, from San Francisco. But New York City would be a massive, powerful city. That's Pergamum. It was a powerful city. And it was a center of all this idolatry and all this false worship. And so I believe this is why Jesus said Satan's throne was in this city. I believe Jesus was probably referring to the multiple temples that were built to worship the emperor. Jesus said this is where Satan's throne is. This is where Satan dwells. Look at all the false worship going on, all the pressure to worship this man happening in this one city every single day. And this is why Christians in that city were facing such persecution. So what a place to be a Christian. Okay, who wants to live in Pergamon, right? But what a place. But this is where the church started. This church started because Paul was in Ephesus bringing a revival. And somebody during that revival went all the way to Pergamum, 100 miles south, and started this church. And it began to grow, and God was working. But this was the city that they were in. And if you can just imagine being a Christian in this city, you would think, okay, just follow me here, but you would think that this daily pressure, this daily persecution would do what? To the Christians there. Okay, if you, were, if you were living in a city where daily you were being persecuted for being a Christian, what do you think would happen to your faith? Okay, wouldn't it be purified? Wouldn't it grow? Don't you have to like decide, okay, am I serious for Jesus or not? You would have to decide, right? And that's what I would think. I would think that the church in Pergamum would be a pure church, a radical church, a committed church. Kind of like the underground church in Iran today. The underground church in Iran is the fastest most powerful church on the earth today, okay, growing rapidly. You know, hundreds, thousands of Muslims are being converted to Christianity. That's what I would picture. And yet, that's not what we see. But Pergamum 
became a place of compromise. So it's a completely different story. Instead of purity and commitment, you see compromise. So pressure does not always produce diamonds. Okay, that's not true, that if you get pressure and persecution, you get diamonds. That's not true. But here, in this city, relentless pressure from the culture produced compromise. It produced compromise. And so this brings us to our second point, the people of compromise. So we just looked at the place of compromise. Now Jesus talks about the people of compromise. Okay, what, what is it about this environment that brought all this compromise to the church? Well, look at verse 14 through 15. But I have a few things against you. And he's talking to the whole church. That's plural. I have a few things against all of you. You have some there in your church who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So right there in just a few verses, Jesus breaks down the church's compromise. And he actually gives an anatomy of compromise. Okay, any kind of compromise that you see in the church will take some form of this. And here are the three things he mentions. False teaching, specifically the teaching of Balaam. We'll get into that in a moment. Idolatry and sexual immorality. So let me briefly mention uh, what was happening with each one of these. But the false teaching or the teaching of Balaam, okay, Jesus mentions this, but what is that? Well, that was basically the teaching of a false prophet in the Old Testament named Balaam. So Balaam was long gone. He wasn't alive during this time. But this is an Old Testament false prophet. You see a story in Numbers 25 and Numbers 31. We're not going to look at it. But basically, he was a false prophet for hire. So he would go and prophesy false things for money. Okay, what a job. But this was his job, his career. And so one day, the Moabite king, who was an enemy of Israel, decided to hire Balaam. Okay, he saw the ad in the newspaper or online, and he's like, okay, I'm going to hire this prophet to curse the Israelites. And Jesus actually mentioned Balak. So Balak, the Moabite king, hired this false prophet to curse Israel. But how many of you guys know you can never curse what God has blessed? Okay, you cannot curse what God has blessed. And so every time he tried to curse the Israelites, he was on this mountaintop looking down on the Israelites encamped below, and curses would not come out. Only blessings came out. God just took over his mouth and brought out blessings. And so you can never curse what God has blessed. And so then he was disappointed. He left that scene. Maybe he didn't get the money. I don't, know. I don't remember exactly what happened. Maybe he did. But later on, he came back and he decided to try one more time. Yeah, I'm going to curse these people. I'm going to get them. But this time, rather than just pronouncing a cursing, he decided to corrupt them. And he decided to get them to compromise and curse themselves. Okay, this is what Balaam was doing. He got them to compromise and curse themselves. So this happens later in the book of Numbers. And so the way he did it is he taught Balak, the Moabite king, how to do it. He taught, them, taught this king false things. He guided this king to bring the Moabite women, bring women who agreed to this. Okay, bring women in your nation to come and do this thing where they are going to come into the Israelite camp and tempt the men. Sexually, and I apologize if you have little children here. I won't go into details or anything. But, but tempt the men and get them to worship other gods. So Balaam here represented three things. Okay, this is very important. False teaching, which led to idolatry, and then sexual immorality. And Balaam represented the surrounding culture. Okay, this is exactly what the surrounding culture around Israel in the Old Testament, this is exactly what they represented. Is what Balaam represented. And this is how the Israelites compromised. This is how they got compromised and then they ended up cursing themselves. And so this compromise that Balaam represented was now the same compromise in the Pergamum church. Okay, this is Jesus' point. Yeah, I'm revealing something to you guys. You guys don't see it, but there's compromise in your church and it's the exact same compromise as Balaam. Everything Balaam did to the Israelites in the Old Testament is now happening in your church right now, there is a spirit of Balaam, you can call it that. Except it's not this one person now, but now it's your culture. Your culture is doing this to you. It's doing it to you. Now, not everyone in the church was embracing all of these things, false teaching, idolatry, sexual immorality. Some did, but the rest, they were just quiet. They just kind of went along. 
They didn't speak up. They didn't challenge it. They didn't correct it. They didn't drive those people out. They just kind of accepted it. They were quiet. And so it became the new norm. So why? Okay, why did they let this thing just come into their church and just remain in their church? Well, the reason why is because just like Balaam, the culture of their city was pressuring them. It was pressing these things into their church. So how many guys can relate to that? How many guys see similar things happening today? But there's just such relentless pressure day in and day out. And again, pressure doesn't always produce diamonds, but pressure oftentimes can produce compromise. But it's kind of like waters against like a dam or maybe somebody kicking a door. You kick the door enough times, there's enough pressure, what happens? It begins to crack open. And so this relentless pressure day in and day out of the culture, false teaching, false teaching, leading to idolatry, leading to sexual morality, eventually the church just, maybe they got tired. Some embraced it, they began to spread it, and the rest of the people were just quiet. And so please hear this, but the church continues to be in the same danger of compromise today. It's the same danger. It's the compromise of false teaching, idolatry, and sexual immorality. And whether people embrace them or silently accept them, this is the compromise that Jesus is warning against. Jesus is saying the same thing today. This compromise is in the church. And I want you to notice this. This is very important. But notice how all three of these things always come together. Okay, false teaching, idolatry, and sexual immorality, they always come together in the Bible. They do. And I'll prove it to you. Romans 1, 18, and then 21. Look at Romans 1. But elsewhere, totally different passage, talking to a totally different church, Paul mentions all three of the same three things. He says in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What is that? False teaching. He's saying all humanity suppresses the truth. They have embraced false teaching. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Why are they futile in their thinking? Because they're suppressing truth, right? They've denied the truth. They've embraced Embrace false teaching. They've become futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And then listen. So they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. What's that? That's idolatry. So false teaching now has led to idolatry. Verse 24, very next verse. Therefore... God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the disarming of their bodies among themselves, and then he goes into a bunch of sexual morality. Okay, that's sexual immorality. So even in this single passage, Romans 1, totally different, totally different church, you see all three things coming together. False teaching, leading to idolatry, leading to sexual morality. But here's the big question, why? Okay, why are these things always together? Why are these things together even today in the church? Why do they always come together? How come when God's people compromise, it often looks like this? Why is this the anatomy of compromise? False teaching, leading to idolatry, and then sexual morality. Well, I believe here's the reason why. It's because a true Christian, someone who hasn't compromised, is who? Okay, who is a true Christian? How would you answer that? Believe in Jesus, yes. Believe in the word of God, yes. But even more broadly than that, who is a true Christian? Again and again and again in the Bible, what does God say about a true Christian? A true Christian worships the true God. It's as simple as that. And that God is Jesus, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as described in Scripture. So the true Christian is the person who worships the true God. And how do we know the true God? How do you know who this true God is? Through his word. It's revealed in Scripture. So we know who the true God is because the Bible tells us who this God is. The Bible reveals his attributes, his plan of salvation, his will for our lives, what he's doing on the earth right now. The Bible is the clearest and greatest source for all knowledge of God. We need to be clear about that. You don't get that anywhere else. Yes, creation can show you a little bit about who God is, but the Bible is the clearest and highest and greatest revelation of who God is. And please pay attention. False teaching is always an attempt to remake who this God is in man's own image. Okay, this is why false teaching starts. This is why there's always false teaching in the world. 
in Jesus' day, in Paul's day, in John's day, in our day. False teaching will always be around. Why? Because human beings always want to remake God in their own image. Why? Because we don't like the true God. Humanity does not like the God that they read in Scripture. So the reason why false teaching continues to play the church throughout history is because human beings don't like the God that they read in Scripture. It's very simple. And so they want to remake this God in their own image. So they don't like what they see in Scripture. Now, I'm not talking about people who have honest questions about what the Bible says, people who are genuinely struggling to understand who this God is in Scripture. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who hear or read clear statements about who God is and what he does, and then they reject it. I don't like that God. I don't want that God. And so that's the beginning of false teaching. And so please hear this. I keep saying that today. (laughs) But false teaching is always personal. Is always personal. I know people kind of like frame it in philosophical terms and so academic and theological, and yet at the root of it, it is always a deeply personal thing. False teaching is always personal. It all stems from this place of, I just don't like the God of the Bible. I don't like what I read in here. And so they begin to change it. Paul calls it suppressing the truth. Not because it's not true, but because, again, they don't want it. And once they've rejected the truth and embraced error, what do they have now? These things always go together. What do you get once you remake the God of the Bible into your own image? What do you have now? You have an idol. Right? You have an idol. You have idolatry. That's the definition of an idol. Is now you have a different God that you're bowing down to. You don't have the God of the Bible. You have a completely different God. And so that leads to idolatry. So now they have a God created in their own image. Okay, what do I mean? They have a God who loves, but he never judges. It's a God who will prosper us, but he will never discipline us. It's a God who is a savior. And by the way, when I say savior, I mean save us from things we don't like in this life. I'm not talking about saving us from his own wrath, his holy wrath. But he's just a savior to save me from things I don't want in life. Okay, like my business failing or my marriage, you know, being kind of like not enjoyable. I mean, God will save me from all these things. But he is not Lord. He's Savior, but not Lord. So do you see that? This is a completely different God. So false teaching has led to idolatry. And now people are bowing down to a different God. They're worshiping a different God. And now, you follow me here, but now once you have a different God who looks like us, now what happens? Okay, this, is, this is the key here. Now we're free. I can just do whatever I want. I don't have to follow this God that I don't like in the Bible. I've remade him. This is a God who doesn't discipline. He doesn't judge. I mean, he rarely even talks about sin. The God I worship, I'm free. I am free. I know it just sounds so blunt and just so obvious when you put it in these terms. When people talk about it out there, it just seems so sophisticated or even in here. It's so sophisticated. Yet at the core, at the roots, this is the bottom line. It is always a personal issue. False teaching is always personal. This remaking of God in their own image is always personal. Why? So that they can be free. I can just live my life the way I want, and now you have the end game. This is the end game. This is what humanity always wants. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 1. So what is this? What do you call this? Compromise. This is the anatomy of compromise. I don't want this God. I mean, gay marriage, I think is perfectly fine. In fact, I've even considered it. I don't want this God. I want something that is more, I don't know, palatable to my life. And so we remake the God of the Bible into our own image, and now we worship this God, and now we're just free. And so what has that now led to? I've already mentioned it, but all kinds of immorality. So do you see the connection now? Paul's very clear. You first suppress the truth. Now you're bowing to a different God. And now you've opened the floodgates to all kinds of immorality. And now Jesus, speaking through John, about 50, 60 years later, says, Pergamum, you've embraced false teaching. You're bowing to a false God. And now you've opened the door to all kinds of immorality. And now I believe Jesus saying, church in America, I'm talking about evangelical churches, churches that believe in the Bible, you have embraced false teaching. You have bowed down to a false God that is not me in the Bible, and now you have opened yourself to all kinds of immorality. And I believe that's exactly where the church is today. 
And so why, again, because human beings want to be free. That is always the end game. So people rebel against God's word and God himself in order to create God in their own image, in order to do whatever they want. And usually, not always, but usually this will be some form of sexual immorality, but other kinds of immorality as well. But usually it involves that. And so this is the anatomy of compromise. And so it's no surprise then to see evangelical churches in America today, large influential churches and entire ministries also following this pattern. It should be no surprise. But I mentioned recently this happening to one of the largest evangelical churches in the world. I'm not going to name them, but you should know who they are. But this happened to one of the largest churches in the world today. But for years, they preached a soft version of the prosperity gospel. And a lot of people pointed that out. I don't know. They keep preaching this kind of prosperity gospel, but it's kind of a soft version, so it's not that offensive. It's not that obvious. But it was a soft version of the prosperity gospel. But then over time, people in that church began to worship a different kind of God. And I know that because a lot of these people were being interviewed. And I saw videos on YouTube of people from the church being asked questions about issues in the culture and what the Bible says. And they were completely off. They were just so far off from what the Bible says. And yet they believed that's what God thought. And so they were worshiping a different kind of God. And then ultimately, in just the recent past, two of their most high-profile leaders, pastors, had to step down from ministry because of sexual sin. It's the same pattern. It's just the same story. False teaching leading to a different God that they're worshiping, which opened the door to immorality. Another example today is the growing progressive Christian movement. But there is a growing movement called the progressive Christian movement. But this is a movement of churches and entire denominations that have decided we don't like what we read in the Bible about who God is, and so they've rejected fundamentals of the gospel. Okay, this is even more serious than the prosperity gospel. But they have rejected things like the virgin birth. They're like, how can that happen? Okay, we don't believe in this kind of a miracle. They've rejected the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Okay, all that means is believing that Jesus died in my place to take the punishment for my sins. They reject that. They actually call it cosmic child abuse. I've heard leaders in that movement say that. That's cosmic child abuse. We cannot accept that. And so they've rejected all of that and more. And so their embrace of false teaching has led them to worshiping a God that looks very different than the God in the Bible. Which then, and there's no surprise again, led them to do what? Embrace things like gay marriage, ordaining, practicing homosexuals. Okay, men and women who are actually practicing that lifestyle, they are now ordained and leading these churches. So what is that? Same story. Just same story. So my desire, mentioning all this, isn't to attack or hurt anyone. That's really not my desire because I realize people, they struggle with these things in their personal lives, specifically sexual sins. I understand that. But I simply just want us to understand what Jesus is saying about compromise. This is what compromise always looks like. This is the anatomy of compromise. And it's not just the influential and the powerful, but even in local churches. I've known pastors personally. They follow the exact same pattern. But I know a pastor personally who for years was committing adultery while pastoring a church. It was going on for like a decade or more. And he was somebody that I considered a friend. I still do to a degree. And I remember talking with his associate pastor one time after all of this came down. It came to light. He had to step down. He left the church. And then I sat down with the associate pastor. And we were talking. And I asked him, like, did you guys kind of know? I mean, you're on staff at that church. And he's like, yeah. We kind of knew something wasn't right. It was very interesting. But he said, well, he gave a few reasons. But one of the reasons he gave was there was just something about his teaching. Very interesting. And what he meant is he never preached on repentance and sin. He said, we always just thought that was weird that he avoided these passages. So he would preach a gospel of grace. And yet it was an incomplete grace. It was a grace that does not rescue us from the wrath of a holy God, but rather it was a grace that is there to bless us, encourage us if you're down. I mean, he would talk all the time about that. Apparently, no matter what you're doing in your life, God is there to encourage you and lift you up, regardless of your life. And yet that's what he talked about all the time. He never talked about a grace that enables us to walk in his ways in holiness. So these are a few examples of how false teaching, idolatry, and sexual sin, they always come together. 
And again, the real issue, the reason why is because the real issue, the core issue, all the way at the bottom, is human beings all the time just want to do whatever they want. Okay, they don't want to be held accountable to a holy God. Even if that God has laid down his very own life for us. See, God doesn't just come to us and say, obey me. But he's like, I gave everything for you. I died for you. I laid down my life for you. And even to a God like that, we go, no, we don't want that. I don't want to be accountable to a God like that. Even a God like that. So at the core, the issue is always, I want to do whatever I want. And by the way, Jesus said that. In the last days, the real issue is lawlessness. It's not legalism. I know the church talks a lot about legalism. That's always going to be a problem. But more and more, I, I've kind of shifted gears. I used to preach all the time on legalism. But more and more, I am talking about lawlessness. Jesus said in the last days, people will be lovers of themselves and they will be lawless. It's lawlessness. Here's another big word. You could tuck it away. But antinomianism is being against the law. Anti, against, namas, law. They are against the law of God. That is going to be the increasing issue as we get closer to the end times of Jesus' return. Why? Again. Because the end game is always human beings do whatever want to do whatever they want. And that's our struggle too, isn't it, as Christians? I want to follow Christ, but deep down, let's just be simple and honest about our hearts. I just want to do whatever I want. I just, I just, want, to, I just want to sin a little bit, right? I just want to sleep around. I just want to, you know, like lie and get ahead of my career. I just want a lot of money and just get things for myself and be happy. I just want to do whatever I want. Even if it hurts people, oh, well, they'll get over it, right? I just want to do whatever I want. That's the core issue every time. And so with that, at the bottom, at the root of every human heart, it's no surprise that eventually these things will happen. False teaching will come, idolatry will come, immorality will come, and that's compromise. So this kind of compromise is real. It was real in the Pergamon church. It's real in the churches today. And so please hear this, but the beginning point of this compromise is always false teaching. So if you're concerned about this compromise in your own life, then where do you look? Look at your view of scripture. It always begins there. You know, I remember this story. It's not a story. It's a true story. It's actually something that happened. But this is a person that I know personally. Actually, I know the entire couple. But this person who was married to this guy decided one day, I don't want to be in this marriage. And they had children. And this person decided, I'm going to leave this marriage because I want to pursue a same-sex relationship. And I remember that during that season, which was very painful, and I remember talking to them and praying, during that time, and this made me furious, but there were people at the church that she was going to, Christians, who basically came to her and said, oh, you got to do what's right for you. You got to follow your heart. You got to do what is right for you. Don't let anything hold you back. And she took that advice. Again, is that in scripture? No, that is actually satanic. Who did whatever was in his heart and wanted to do what was right in his own heart? Satan. That, that, that's the enemy, right? That's exactly what he did that brought his downfall. But she took that advice and she left her husband. It just crushed the family, the poor children, and she just took off. And from what I hear, even to this day, she's with that other person. And so what does that mean? If you are wondering... Well, gosh, where does compromise start in my life? Just look at your view of scripture. See, those Christians in that other church, and it's a very good church. They actually respect that church a lot. But some of the Christians in there, even in a good church, you have people like that. They had no regard for the word of God. None. They didn't know what was in here. And even if they did, they didn't care. And so what happened? False teaching led to idolatry, worshiping a different kind of God. Oh, this is fine. God approves of this, which led to immorality and then everything devastated. Everything fell apart. And so even in our own lives, I would encourage you, look at your view of Scripture. Brothers and sisters, this is where it all begins. So as you're encountering cultural issues, and day after day, my wife and I, we're losing count of how many times we're facing issues in the culture. Immediately, you know what you should do? Don't talk to your friend. Don't call them up and go, oh, what do you think about this? Don't surf the, the Internet. Open up your Bibles and see what God has to say. Look at what God has to say. And if it doesn't line up, no matter how much you don't agree. And by the way, why would you, ex why would you expect to agree with everything in Scripture? <laughs> right? I remember one pastor saying that. Just calmly and gently. Church, why would you expect to agree with everything in here if God is totally not like you and he's holy? 
and you are an imperfect, sinful human being with limited knowledge, why, why would you expect to agree with everything here? Trust me, you won't. <laughs> okay, just already on the front end, let me tell you, you will not agree with everything in here. Don't be bothered by that. You're going to read things, you're going to completely disagree, and the response should be, Lord, help me to understand this. I humble myself. I don't go, nah, I want my own God in my own image. No. You just humble yourself and go, God, clearly you say it. I don't understand. But your word has been around a lot longer than me. 4,000 years has changed entire cultures and civilizations. I'm just here for 20 years, 40 years maybe. Maybe I should be a little humble and see what the word of God has to say. Right? It's just amazing to me how people just disregard the word of God. A book that has been here for millennia, transforming entire cultures and civilizations. Large segments of the earth have been radically transformed because of this book. Right? We need to humble ourselves and say, God, if you say it, let me listen. Why? Maybe you know a little bit better because you're God. Maybe you know a little bit better. So my encouragement, brothers and sisters, is as you continue to face issues in the culture, every single time, humble yourself and look at the word of God. What does the word of God say? Do not immediately embrace false teaching and remake God in your own image. Because I know exactly what will happen. Next step, immorality. It's just so obvious. Next step, immorality. And by the way, immorality is not just having fun and disobeying God. Immorality is being hurt and hurting others. Being hurt and hurting others. Why do you think God tells us to command, obey certain commands. Why, why do you think God gives us commands? It's because he doesn't want us to be hurt and hurt others. Immorality always results in being hurt and hurting others. So that leads us now to the peril of compromise. The peril of compromise. Look at verse 16 and 17. Jesus said, therefore, now that you understand what is happening in your church, the anatomy of compromise, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so here, there's a reference to the sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. This was mentioned before in verse 12 in our passage. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. And where else did we hear that? In chapter 1. This is one of the descriptions of Jesus, the vision of Jesus that John had. Out of his mouth was, came out a very sharp two-edged sword. And so what does that sword represent? It represents the word of God. And Jesus is saying, I will come to you if you don't repent. And I will war against you. And here he changed the pronoun from you to them. So he's addressing the entire church. But not everyone in that church had embraced this, right? Not everybody in that church had embraced false teaching, idolatry, and immorality. They were quiet. But not everybody. But some did. And so Jesus said, I will come to you and I will war against them. Right? Jesus is saying, I'm going to pinpoint and I'm going to come against them. And this is the only time in these letters where Jesus said, I will war. So if any of you guys are confused on how Jesus feels about false teaching, see, most Christians go, yeah, sexual morality is bad. Idolatry is bad. But false teaching, I don't know. We seem very kind of gray about that. We're kind of like, okay. I don't know. There's different views, right? Well, let me make it clear. Jesus says, if you embrace false teaching, which opens the door to all these other things, I am going to war against you. I will war against you. If you think about being a patient who has cancer, would you want your doctor to come in and go, you know what, we're just going to watch your cancer for a while, maybe like two years. We'll just maybe, you know, kind of feed it a little and see if it'll, like, listen to us. No. They come and war against your cancer, and that's the way Jesus is. I will war against this cancer, this false teaching that will spread and grow idolatry and immorality. And so this is the image here. Jesus will come against false teaching very directly, very seriously. And so hopefully you can see why now. Okay, this is not a small deal, brothers and sisters. Okay, if you have embraced something that is not true against Scripture, okay, that is what is false, against Scripture. If you have a false image of who God is, again, an image that is not in Scripture, Jesus will come to you and war against you. And I don't know fully what that means, but it doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound good. But ultimately, his desire is to redeem and to bring his people back. And so he will come against you, but hopefully to bring you back. And so this is the peril of false teaching or compromise, I should say. This is the peril. And yet for those 
who hear God's word, and so God's word will come warring against your false beliefs. It will directly come against it. It will actually feel like an attack on you. Really? Really, God? That's what you say in your word? And it's going to feel offensive. So Jesus is going to war against your false beliefs. But even if you don't repent then, even then, if you don't repent, then we see what will happen. But going back to the Old Testament in the book of Numbers, God, when Balaam brought false teaching and there was idolatry and then immorality in the Israelite camp, this is what ended up happening. But it says in Numbers 31, 16, Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord. Treacherously meaning that they were worshiping an idol. They began to have sexual morality. They began to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. There was a plague. And it began to spread through the camp and 24,000 people died. And even then, God came and then stopped the plague because of the zealous passion of one priest who came. And he's like, no, this will not happen. And he killed somebody and he brought it to an end. But God preserved the remnant of Israel. But that plague did come. 24,000 people died. Now, I'm not saying that there's going to be people dying and dropping dead in churches. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that this is serious, brothers and sisters. It is serious. And ultimately, the final judgment is even greater than this plague. The final judgment is far greater. And so this is the great peril of compromise. And so now going to the church today, I mean, imagine what God is seeing and imagine how God is going to respond. Okay, I can't, I, I've lost count how many churches in the last few years are just closing their doors, closing their doors. Now, not every church that closes their doors is because of sin or rebellion. I'm not saying that. Some churches just simply close their doors. There's something else. But there are many churches nowadays. I just lose count. How many churches? The pastor, false teaching, worshiping an idol, committed immorality. Now they're gone. The church closes their doors. Same story again. Same story again. Okay, what do you think is happening? I think there's a plague. There's a plague. And so this is the great peril of compromise. But it ends on a hopeful, hopeful note, like every letter, and we're going to end with this. But there's a promise to those who conquer, a promise. But if you look in verse 17, Jesus said, To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So here Jesus ends with a great promise to the compromised church. First he mentions the manna from heaven. Okay, manna is a clear reference to Jesus. Jesus said, I am the manna from heaven. I am the bread from heaven. So what does this point to? I believe this is pointing to true spiritual nourishment. Okay, at the end of the day, the reason why people want to just do what they want to do is because there are things they want in life, right? Okay, why do people want to pursue money? Because they believe money is going to bring them things that they feel like they need. Why are they pursuing relationships and getting to all these relationships and sleeping around? Because they believe that that's going to bring them true fulfillment, true happiness, something that they need. So there are always things that people are wanting in these pursuits and just living free. And yet Jesus says, the culture and what it's offering you will never nourish your soul. And yet, to the one who conquers, I will give you the true manna that will nourish your soul. That manna is me. So this is Jesus Christ himself. You will have me. And you will have me forever. And I will nourish your soul forever. So this is the first promise. And then the second promise is, he said, you will get a white stone with a name on it, and I believe this is given to every Christian, not just the Pergamum Christians, but every Christian who conquers, conquer meaning you believe in Christ and receive his grace, to every Christian who conquers, they will receive a white stone. And in ancient times, the white stone probably refers to a stone that athletes in ancient times received who were victors. So if you were in an athletic competition and you won, you would get a wreath, you would also get a white stone. But this is probably a white stone like that, given to the victor, the one who conquers. And on this stone is written a name that nobody knows, only the one who receives it. And so every true believer, once you get to heaven, you will no longer be John Doe. <laughs> you will no longer be Billy Kim or whatever your name is. But you're going to have a whole new name. And I love what this Bible scholar said, but this name is new, and that word kainos, new, is new, not just in like, oh, I have a new name, but is new completely in quality. What that points to is you are going to be a whole new person. That is what this new name points to. 
You are going to be a completely new, transformed person. This is what Jesus is saying. If you commit yourself to me and you accept my grace, you put your faith in the gospel, not by words, but by grace, right? By faith. If you just accept me and cling to me by grace, you will conquer and you will be completely new. You will have a completely new nature. This is the white stone with the new name on it. And so if you're not connecting with this and this isn't hopeful to you, then let me just make that connection. Every single day, and I've said this, but who discourages me the most? Me. Every single day, who discourages you? My, my roommate. <laughs> well, live longer. <laughs> live a little longer. It's going to go from your roommate, maybe your siblings, maybe your boss. But over time, you're going to realize the person who discourages me the most is me. I am my worst enemy. I sabotage my own life more than anyone. Why? Because my heart is constantly compromised. You know what compromise means? Compromise means wavering between two different ends. You could say God here, you could say the enemy here, or the world here. But you're wavering between two different ends. Here's another word for compromise, a divided mind. The book of James calls it that. It's having a divided mind. Yes, I love God, but I really love the world. We talked about that before. That is a compromised mind. It's a divided mind. And so every single day, we are living with a compromised mind, a divided mind. That is sabotaging you. That is robbing you of joy and of peace and of love and of power in the Holy Spirit. That is why when you come to church, it's like, eh, meh. It's because you have a divided mind, brothers and sisters. Your heart is drifting somewhere else. Why? Because you have a divided mind. And so why is this encouraging? Because Jesus is saying, if you conquer, that will be gone. Amen? It is gone. Finally, finally, it is gone. You will have a complete new nature, a brand new name. You are a completely new person. No more divided mind. You are whole. I love what is most love worthy, God. Then I love what is second most, you know, worthy, my family. Then I love what is third. You have an ordered love, an ordered heart. It's not all upside down. Oh, I love God down here, but I love like pornography up here, and I love like money over here. It's not just upside down. You finally have an ordered heart and an ordered mind. This is what I believe the new name is. The overcomer's name is new, kainos, in quality. It is the nature that is appropriate to the new age. This is what Jesus is promising. And so it's very interesting, but when I look in the Old Testament, we're closing with this truly. But the person who had the most divided mind was Lot, Abraham's nephew. But Lot in the Old Testament had a divided mind. He was a believer. He knew God. He had God's covenant. And yet he lived on the edge of Sodom and Gomorrah. He lived right on the edge of that city. In fact, he sat at the gate of the city. He was an important person in that city. And so just imagine Lot. Okay? If you read, go back and read his story, I mean, he has such confusion spiritually. He lacked clarity. He lacked clarity. Okay? He, he was just just torn up inside. The Bible says that. He was tormented day and night. Why? Because he knew the right, but he wasn't doing it. He was compromised. And then in the end, he just had this terrible legacy. This is what a divided mind brings. But Lot, and this ties into Revelation 2, Balaam and the Moabites, but Lot was who? The father of the Moabites. Isn't that interesting? Lot was the father of the compromised people. Why? Because Lot was compromised. So that was his legacy. And I'm not going to go into his shady story, but Lot, after he fled the city when it was being destroyed, he ended up in a very, very bad place with his daughters. And that's how the Moabites started. So this compromised man started the compromised people who eventually came in and compromised God's church. So that was his legacy. And so that is what compromise brings, you guys. And yet Jesus, he ends on this note again. And yet you will have a new nature. Amen. So let's just come before the Lord. I'm going to end there. Let's just come before the Lord. But Jesus said that compromise is going to come to an end. It's going to come to an end. That divided mind and that divided heart is going to come to an end. And if you don't long for that yet, Again, it might be because you just haven't lived long enough and tasted the bitter fruit of compromise. 
you truly don't know, you have not tasted the bitter fruit of false teaching and then idolatry leading to immorality. And immorality always, there's no escaping it, results in being hurt and hurting others, always. You will not be the exception, always. And it's usually those who have actually went all the way and ate that bitter fruit, they're the ones who become aware. But you don't have to go all the way there. You don't have to. You can know today. You can know that today. I don't want compromise. I don't want to go all the way in my compromise and eat the bitter fruit, being hurt and hurting others. I don't want that. I want my heart to be 100% for God and everything the word of God says about him. So if that's your heart, let's just come before the Lord and pray. And I'm going to stop talking, but let's just come before the Lord. Thank you, Lord.